Welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our values are our why, and they're central to our well-being and success in a world full of distractions, temptations, and challenges. I created this podcast to explore how values affect our personal lives, our relationships, and the wider world in which we live. Join me, Tom English, as I uncover which values help and which values hinder in the pursuit of success that's both meaningful and sustainable. Let's begin. Season one of the Real Clear Values podcast is finally kicking off. I say finally because this is something that I've had on my agenda to do for a little while now and lockdowns helped me to make it a reality. First of all, I want to briefly talk through what you can expect from these podcasts. As I mentioned already in the intro, this is a podcast about values, more more specifically values for and against sustainable success. I decided that season one is going to tell the story of my own values journey in a fairly broad way. I don't want to go into every single nook and cranny of detail, but there is a broad thread that runs through it that I'd like to relay to listeners so you know where I'm coming from and you get some insight into where I am coming from in relation to the topic of values. Season two is going to tell the story of why I care so much about values in a business and organizational context. There's plenty of stories for me to share on that front, which I look forward to to doing in due course. And in season three and beyond, that's when I'm really looking forward to having guests in to speak to me about values in relation to their lives, their organizations, their areas of expertise, etc. I am really excited about this. There's so much I look forward to sharing and so many fascinating people I look forward to speaking with. So let's get cracking then with episode one of season one, Growing Up. Growing up for me was interesting. I was raised by two parents, a mom and a dad, and I was born and raised into a Mormon household. Mormonism is officially known as the religion of the Church of of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I had two parents who were both present throughout my earliest years. Mom and dad have a younger sister who was in the home as well. have an older sister who didn't live with us for most of my life. It was an interesting upbringing, I'll put it like that. It was one in which I was given very strong roots, very strong spiritual roots through a religious context, which has been immensely valuable to me in empowering me to connect with God very directly on a personal level. And while I was taught at church about how to do things like praying and reading scripture and other things like that. I learned early on through the challenges and the vicissitudes of life to put those things into practice because I had no other choice. I found myself in some pretty hairy situations as a young person, which I didn't have any control over whatsoever. And those situations, shall we say, invited me to check this stuff out and test if prayer really works. And It did for me, it really did. It really empowered me from a very young age to connect directly with God, who is, as I see it, my Heavenly Father. And 
it really was quite a, a solid basis for me in terms of keeping on the, the proverbial straight and narrow because I should say that that none of what I've just said about connecting with God through prayer and scripture should suggest that I was angelic by any means. I was actually quite mischievous and I loved to get a reaction from other people, especially those who were in authority, which led me to flood the playgroup that I attended twice, not just once, twice prior to my fifth birthday. The first time was part experiment, part looking for the reaction, and the second time was honestly just for the sheer fun of it. And yes, it was fun, to a point. I could be the natural or free child, and at other times the adapted, obedient child as well. Like I say though, despite my mischievous nature, my religious upbringing did help me to stay more or less on the straight and narrow. But in some respects, my obedience was, was out of duty or obligation. And so that can only take you so far. You have to ultimately decide for yourself whether you want to take full ownership of the principles that you've been taught. And that's something that I certainly found myself having to do as well. As I entered my teenage years, I did find myself stepping back from various different peer groups, sometimes even walking away. And that was because our values differed. They were going down one path and I didn't like the look of that path and where it looked like it was going to end up. And so I found myself stepping back and, and walking away. But avoiding temptation wasn't entirely the same as overcoming temptation. There was an element of postponement to some of these things. I still had to fully face up to the things or to certain things that tempted me. And ultimately I had to choose which path I would take. I do remember having very strong moral convictions. I remember not liking history whatsoever when I was in secondary school. In fact, I hated history. And a reason for that is because I had dyslexia without knowing that I had dyslexia. And so I was very slow at writing and the teacher would typically stand at the front of the class and read out from a textbook and want the students to essentially write down word for word verbatim what was read out from the textbook. And that was like hell for me because being dyslexic, I was slow at writing. I would then get frustrated. I would then be disruptive and mischievous because I was frustrated and it was kind of a vicious circle. But I had a fantastic teacher when I was about 14 or 15 who really, really, really brought history to life for me and really showed me the inherent humanity of history, how history is really a story of emotions and people's decision-making at different junctures and different contexts. And learning about things like slavery in the United States learning about the Vietnam War really lit a fire within my soul. So on the one hand, I, was, I had these strong moral convictions, this strong idea of God and my connection with God and other people's connection with God as well. It wasn't just that I was somebody special and to heck with everybody else. It was, it was a view of who God is in relation to, to people, to the human race. So I was really quite angered by what I was learning in some of these history classes and it really sparked an excitement within me, uh, an emotional excitement, which carried me on to ultimately do history at degree level. And this, this excitement that I had within me, this anger, if you like, 
had me tying into all sorts of different groups and different artists, music artists such as Rage Against the Machine, The Clash, all these punk bands and a few metal bands as well. And channeling this this anger in a particular way, I got into music. I was very much into music, loved playing music. Uh, my friends, many of them were guitarists and they didn't have a bassist. So I was the guy who's, whose mom had tried to force him to learn a musical instrument, but had dropped out at every given opportunity at the soonest point. They said to me, hey man, look, the bass isn't that difficult to learn. You, you, you've, you've had a, a failed um, attempt, if you can even call it an attempt, at playing the trumpet and the piano respectively. Why don't you give it a go? So that for me was an ideal avenue for me to engage with my friends in the language of music and creativity in that context and also a way of channeling this anger that I felt in regards to some of the injustices in the world that I was coming to grips with through through my study of history. But a big juncture came for me when I was 19 years old and it was around the question of whether I would go on a mission for the, the church that I'd been attending, the Mormon church, or not. Going on a mission had seemingly been etched into my future from day dot. I'd been raised to go. Going on a mission willingly, cheerfully, and for the glory of God was the right answer. It was the path. It was unequivocally the next step as far as I'd been raised. For so long the decision had been made for me. My parents had made it for me. Teachers and leaders at church had made it for me. It was the right thing to do. And by extension, I meandered my way into making the decision for myself, I guess. But had I really? That question came to an unavoidable head the very night before I was due to fly out to the missionary training centre known as the MTC in Provo, Utah, before ultimately heading out to Madagascar. Madagascar was the place that I'd been assigned to spend my near two-year mission period. There were so many things enticing me to stay at home. I had, in more recent months at that point, found my own voice. Like I say, I was I was into I was into my music. I loved playing with bands and listening to music and hanging out with friends who were into music. Rather than avoiding parties in certain company, I was looking for them and I was having, frankly, a great time. I had friends who wanted to hang out with me morning, noon and night one of which would even name his son after me. And my romantic interests and options were greater than at any other point in my teenage years. I also had a job and a driving license. Essentially, I was free. It was simply a bad time to be going on a mission. The inconvenient timing of my mission could be encapsulated within my relationship with a single individual who, for the sake of confidentiality, we'll call Kate. Kate had appeared one day at British Home Stores, the department store in which I worked like an apparition, completely out of nowhere, with striking blonde hair and piercing blue eyes. As I showed her to the room where she would be interviewed for a job, yes, she wanted to work there, I knew that I was smitten. In my newfound confidence and excitement, I got far too carried away. She was, as I saw her at the time, perfect. Hook, line and sinker. Anyway, she got the job, so I got to see much more of her. It didn't take long for us to exchange numbers, and we'd spend hours talking on the phone deep into the night. 
She was interested in studying sociology at university, though hadn't done so at high school. She would have to convince the admissions staff that she would be up to speed if they were to accept her onto a degree programme. And that's where I could help. Having gotten my act together in my own high school sociology studies, I took my predicted C slash D to a high A through learning the syllabus in pretty short order, falling in love with the subject in the process. It was too perfect. Kate and I spent hours talking about sociological theory and thinkers, and we loved it. She was into action movies as well at the time, as was I, and kickboxing. She really was perfect. More to the point, to my mind, we were perfect. She'd tell me how intelligent I was, inflating my ego, no end. And I'd tell her how cool she was when she regaled me with stories from kickboxing competitions in which she'd competed. Why on earth would I leave all that behind to go on a wild goose chase to Madagascar via Utah? The route from the UK didn't even make sense. So much potential would be lost if I disappeared for two years. Everything I wanted was right here, in Harrogate, North Yorkshire, the small town in which I'd grown up. I really didn't want to leave, not now at least. The call I had with Kate the night before my scheduled departure was intense. Our burgeoning but relatively nascent relationship was in the balance, but so too, I felt, was my soul. For me, the entire scenario was existential. It was an axial moment and really could have gone either way. At one point in the conversation, Kate pleaded with me not to go. Then, much to her credit, grasped the significance of the decision and told me that she didn't want to be the reason that I passed up a potentially life-changing experience. She wasn't religious by any means, but she kind of got it. At that point, her vision was greater than mine. By a gnat's whisker, and much to the relief of my parents, teachers and everyone else who had decided that I would go on a mission, I decided to leave for Madagascar via Utah. Call it blind faith, call it what you will, but there was an unseen irrational appeal to going on my mission that went beyond doing the right thing by my parents and teachers. My flight out to Utah was actually delayed by a day due to severe fog, but on the morning I awoke to fly out, I had a hymn in my mind and a feeling of peace in my heart. I took it as confirmation that I'd made the right decision. That said, my time in the Missionary Training Center, MTC, was miserable. I was lovesick, angry from a traumatic childhood, and thoroughly maladjusted to the highly controlled, restrictive environment in which I was. To my teachers, I was weird, or worse still, unworthy. To me, one particularly antagonistic teacher was a fascist, and I let him know. To say that my time in the MTC was little more than a painful waste of time, however, would be inaccurate. For most of my time there, I was in hell. But it was a personal kind of hell. The kind in which a less than ideal environment forces a soul that lacks forgiveness into some exceedingly dark places. No one else in my peer group was in that hell. Only me. It was all mine. And I had to face up to it and escape. Escaping from the hell of the MTC came before I left the place. My dad and I had had a volatile relationship throughout my teenage years, and I held so much resentment towards him that one of my leaders at church, 
had cautioned me not to allow my anger to turn to hate before I'd left for my mission. My personal hell of the MTC changed my relationship with my dad forever. I only recall receiving a single letter from Kate during my two months in the MTC. I'd written to her several times in trying to cling on to our relationship and stay sane within my personal hell. My dad, however, wrote to me every single week, every single week without fail. He wrote me a letter to tell me what he'd been doing, letting me know the latest football scores, wishing me well and communicating his love for me. At the heart of my volatile relationship with my dad was his mental illness. Such is the stigma surrounding mental illness that I'd refused to talk to anyone in my peer group or friendship about it to any great extent. I'd had a few counselling sessions when I was 15 or so just to get things off my chest, but nothing serious from a therapeutic perspective. I still remember the night that I was freed from hell in the MTC. I honestly don't remember how or why I decided to open up about the situation with my dad, but I do remember Elder Nathan Haney, my roommate, leaning forward empathically to hear what I had to say. I remember, clear as day, the look of concern, compassion and care in his eyes as he received the information I was giving him. This was not a small thing as I really had not been good company to that point. I was not easy to get along with in the MTC. Having listened carefully, he then told me of a family member of his, an uncle if I recall correctly, who had a similar condition to my dad. He told me how it affected his cousin, making me feel like my turmoil was completely understandable. In short, he knew. Haney knew where I was coming from and how I was feeling. I felt like I could breathe. I had air. I flung open the doors of my personal hell and grabbed Haney in a bear hug. I was crying like a baby. Tears of healing. Tears of relief. Tears of joy. I was free to forgive my dad, recognise his love for me, and to step into the light instead of languishing in darkness. It was an incredible, seemingly rapid transformation. And it happened through the care, concern, empathy and love of another. That experience with Haney came right at the end of our time in the MTC prior to leaving for Madagascar. It may have been the last night or the penultimate night that we were there. I had other powerful spiritual experiences while there too. In short, the hell of the MTC, although painful, had been worth it in the end. Another stiff challenge awaited me, however. Perhaps in some respects, a stiffer challenge. How would I handle life as a missionary in a third world country? Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfillment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to threestewardships.com or message me directly 
to tom at threestewardships.com. That's tom at threestewardships.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English, and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success.